All right, good evening, and welcome to our midweek Wednesday night. We're in Genesis 26, so take your Bible, open it up there. Like Father, like Son is the name of the message. We are going to get most of our information about the life of Isaac in this particular chapter. Um, if you have read the book of Genesis or studied through it before, you know that the first part of Genesis is pretty much enveloped in the life of Abraham. And then the uh, middle portion of the book is all about Jacob. And then when we get towards the end of the book, it'll be pretty much about Joseph. So when we think about this son of promise, his name Isaac means laughter. We think, well, you know, what happened with him? We know about his miracle birth. We, we know the story of Genesis 22 when dad took probably a late teenage boy up on the mountain and was going to sacrifice him. I would imagine that Isaac needed years of counseling after that. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Something like this, having dinner, I would ask dad, were you really going to kill me? I think that would be a question that would be resonating in my soul. Anyway, but uh, we don't have a whole lot of details about Isaac's life except for Genesis 26. So that's what we got tonight. And we're going to see like father, like son in the sense of this. We're going to see him blessed by God. And we're also going to see Isaac repeat the blunders of his father. Both the blessings and the blunders. And so uh, if you're a parent here tonight, grandparent, you kind of know how this works. You know that our children watch us, and we leave an inevitable imprint on them, their souls. We leave a legacy. And I think that, you know, when we think about legacy, sometimes we can have a negative thought right away and think, well, I'm not sure what my legacy is. But Abraham actually left a legacy of faith. In fact, in Romans 4, verse 12, we're told to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And there's an old story, you know, it's, it's from years back where the son says to the father as they're going up a mountain, you know, Dad, uh, careful where you step because I'm following in your footsteps. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to be together tonight. We're grateful to be able to sit before your holy word and know that it's going to be profitable for us tonight. The real key is what kind of soil are we? and whether our ears are open to what you would say to us tonight. I pray, Lord, that we'd set aside every distraction that we've brought into this place, that we would be ready to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls, but it's also able to build us up. And I pray that that would happen tonight, that you'd meet us here in a powerful way around this Bible text, and that since you've already spoken it, I just pray that it'll speak to our hearts and we'll respond in the way that you want us to respond. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Like father, like son, Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So there was a famine in the land, verse 1, and the, the reader is encouraged to remember a previous famine, and the previous famine was back in the days of Abraham, Isaac's dad. And when there was a famine in the land, this, is, this story is told in chapter 12, so it's way back in our story, Abraham went down to Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. In time of famine, what Abraham decided to do, at this time he's Abram, is he decided to go to the south. He decided to go to the land of Egypt. And the reason he went there is because it was a famine and because the Nile was known to always be 
filled with water and be able to sustain life. And so this is what Abraham did, or Abram at that time did. And he went down to Egypt, and when he did, he made a big blunder. You remember, he lied about his wife, and he said, she's actually my sister. That was kind of a half-truth, you know, one of those half-lies that we think we can get away with, right? And so um, that did not go well. And, uh, you know, even though God blessed Abraham despite that, there was some tough sledding and some tough lessons to be learned. And even though Abraham is held up as the father of the faithful in the New Testament, and his blunders are not mentioned in the New Testament, which is a great encouragement to all of us, there's still lessons that sons and daughters watch parents um, teach. And our sons and daughters especially watch us in times of famine. They especially watch us in times of pressure. They wonder if our faith is going to be good in those times. And we lead not only in times of plenty, we lead not only in times when life is good or we're trying to teach little life lessons, we lead in times of pressure as well. And I think our kids really want to know, is our faith real in those times? Or do we respond like everybody else does? Hold your place in Genesis 26 and turn to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, talking about footsteps. Psalm 40, the Psalms are a great place to go just to minister to your soul. Psalm 40, this is a Psalm of David, and here's what he writes regarding walking out your faith. Psalm 40, look at verse 1. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me up out of a pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which thou hast done and thy thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired, my ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering and sin offering that thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, this is about the Messiah, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. The psalm kind of moves from David to the Messiah. Go back to Genesis 26. And David says that you have made my footsteps firm. You've put a new song in my mouth. My footsteps always used to be to the world. When I was in time of crisis, I had my triggers like everybody else. I had my issues and my problems. And when I did, I looked for solutions in the world. I had really no place else to go. So that's what you did. Some people medicate themselves. Some people go and try to you know, burn off some steam doing this or that. Some people try to find solutions in, you know, self-help books and that kind of thing. And those are the kinds of things that you run to. You look for man's solutions to problems. And this is something that Abraham did, even though he had just been called by God and given promises by God. Um, yet he uh, blundered in some of the chapters in the Old Testament. And yet he is a great example. It tells us we don't have to be perfect but we need to be consistent. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We need human examples. 
We need people, men and women, that we can look up to. I, I don't know if you're in a discipleship relationship with someone right now, but you should be, it should be going both ways for all of us. We should be giving away discipleship to people, and we should be receiving it from others. So you need to have it coming from both directions. I don't know where your life is right now. I don't know how you would assess your spiritual life, but hopefully you are discipling and being discipled. And if you're not, uh, or if you have it just going one way, that's something to work on. Psalm 119, 133 says, Establish my footsteps in thy word. Do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. I was talking with a young man uh, recently, and we were talking about, you know, just the struggle of the human life and how we deal with temptation and sin and how even after we become Christians, the Christian life can still be a struggle. And we were talking about 1 Corinthians 10, 13, how God is faithful and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but he will provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. And then the Bible says, flee from idolatry. And we're talking about, well, you know, um, God has grace for us and that's awesome, but we, we went to a verse in the book of James where it says that God gives greater grace. It says there, this is, just write this down for your notes. This is James 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. And then the verse goes on to say, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. And in the middle of those verses, it says, he gives greater grace. And there was kind of a light bulb that went off in that little Bible study, and the light bulb was this. I can get grace before I make a mistake? I thought grace was for after you blow it. I said, well, certainly grace is for after you make a mistake, but it's also for before. There's such a thing, write this down, as preemptive grace. My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord says to Paul, for my power is perfected in what? Weakness. Grace is a synonym in many contexts of the Bible for strength. Grace is another way to say God's strength. And if you want to have preemptive grace in your life, you get grace before you blow it. Oh, it's wonderful. It's kind of like taking vitamins before you're sick, working out before you're overweight. Can I get a witness? <laughs> yeah and so this is the key to our walk it's to be prepared for what's going to come your way during the normal course of a day are you ever shocked by what comes your way are you ever surprised by you face maybe a dilemma a famine a moment of pressure and you go the wrong way and you're like what in the world am I doing and then you're able to track maybe the last couple of days with your devotional time, your Bible reading. And somebody asks you, when's the last time you read God's Word? 1992. You know, it's not hard to figure out when we don't have the grace of God consistently coming into our lives. It's hard enough when you do. And so Isaac is going to face his own trial. He's going to get blessings and he's going to repeat some blunders. There's a famine in the land. Genesis 26, 1. And notice, it, it, uh, Isaac goes down to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. If you want the geography, Gerar is kind of at the border of Egypt and the Promised Land. So he's heading south, and no doubt he's heading towards Egypt just like his dad did. Look at verse 2. 
And the Lord appeared to him, verse 2, and said, Genesis 26, 2, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, Abraham did a dumb thing. He went down to Egypt. He got himself in trouble. And God intervenes. The Lord appeared to Isaac as he was heading down to repeat daddy's mistake. Have you ever had a moment like that? You're heading down to the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, going for the wrong solution, and you get this epiphany. Maybe it's something on the radio. Maybe you're driving around in your car. Maybe it's a Saturday night and you're flipping channels and a preacher is talking to you. And it feels like it's just you and that preacher's in the passenger seat. Ever been there before? Something like this. Whatever you're going to do right now, don't do it. (laughs) You see, this is how God works. He can be this specific with us. And this is a theophany. This is the first time that God ever, that we have recorded at least, that ever God speaks directly to Isaac. Now, Isaac was up on Mount Moriah when God spoke to Abraham and provided the uh, offering. But this is the first time that Isaac has his own encounter with the direct voice of God. And God says, don't go to the world. If you want the typology, Egypt is a type of the world, a picture of the world. God says, I know it's a famine, but don't go there. Don't repeat the blunder of your dad. Don't do what your dad did. And sometimes us dads and moms, we try to sit down at at tables with our kids and we say, okay, don't do what I did here, right? And some of them do heed that counsel. Young people do want to hear from us. They do want to hear our life experiences. Unfortunately, not all of them listen. Some of them have to learn the hard way. We all seem to learn some things the hard way. And God says, don't do what your dad did. Egypt proved to be a problem for your papa, if I could put it this way. And so don't do that. Don't go down to Egypt. Are you there right now? Are you pondering a, a move towards the world because maybe it's a time of pressure? Maybe it's a time of famine? I think God would say the same thing to us. Don't do it. We know that God appeared about eight times to Abraham and twice in this chapter he will appear to his son Isaac. Here's what God says. He says, verse three, Genesis 26, sojourn in the land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Stay here and I will bless you. Another way to say this is I will provide for you. When we get in times of difficulty financially, for example, and things are tough, and all of a sudden we're trying to find financial solutions, that can be a real time of pressure. And God reassures Abraham here, I'm going to walk you through this. In fact, he repeats the original promise he gave to his father. He says, for I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. I don't know if anybody heard Focus on the Family today. Raise up your hand if you did. You didn't? Okay. Anyway, there's a guy being interviewed, and he said that um, he had become a Christian. He had a few kids, and he went to some meeting, and there was some guy that supposedly had a prophetic gift. And so the guy went forward for prayer, and the prayer that this man with the alleged prophetic gift, as this is the way that the uh, guy being interviewed put it, said, your children are going to be as the stars of the heaven. 
And this guy was already cynical about this whole thing, and, and he laughed, him, and he said, like, I have a couple of kids, and <laughs> I'm not sure we're having any more, and yeah, right, yeah, that's, that's false. Well, anyway, through time, the course of time, this guy felt a call to ministry, and he, got, he felt a call to China, and he ended up getting, this is a very, uh, you know, abridged version of the story, but he ended up getting this call to China, and he specifically got involved in orphan ministry. And the statistics now say that he's probably been involved in some sort of ministry to over 300,000 children. And he said he looked back at that moment when that man prayed over him, and the interviewer said, you know, to the naked eye, I know there's more than this, but there's about 40,000 stars visible to the naked eye, and you've (laughs) helped 300,000 children. And he goes, yeah, you know, and, and look, we got to put all this in its proper context, and not everybody who says they have a word for us may, may be from God, but he says that was from God. And I didn't know what God was going to do with me at that time. And so here's what he says. He says, I am going to bless you. This is the promise. Isaac, then, you know, uh, Jacob and Esau come, as we saw in the last chapter, and then, of course, Jacob will become Israel. And he says, by your descendants, notice verse 4, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham, see, God says, I will multiply, I will give, but then look at Abraham's response in verse 5. You might want to mark this, because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Look, it is God that calls. It is God that has prepared good works beforehand, but you and I need to walk in them. And if you don't walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand, then you can become like Jonah. He might prepare a custom-made vehicle for you to return to your calling. Amen. Might be wet, maybe dark. You may end up with a seaweed hat. You may end up smelling very fishy. We don't know. You may lose your tan. Or it may be that God just allows you to go off and do what you want to do and you lose decades. I talk to people all the time who become Christians or rededicated later in life and they, and they are bummed at the years that they lost. So Isaac lived in Gerar, verse 6. Gerar actually means halting place, which is interesting. The famine was regional. It probably included Gerar, which, is, which was Philistine country, kind of on the border of Egypt and the Promised Land. But Isaac parked in Gerar. And interestingly enough, the second blunder of his own dad was at this place. He lied about his wife again. He didn't learn from the Egypt situation in Genesis 12. So in Genesis 20, when he's faced with Abimelech in this situation, he lies about it again. And God came to Abimelech in a dream and said to Abimelech, that woman is married and if you touch her, you're dead. You want to talk about a dream? That's a dream. You get up and have your cornflakes a little early and, you know, try to find this guy. Say, what's going on? And in both instances, unbelievers had to rebuke mighty Abraham and say something like this. Why did you lie to me, man? What did we do to you? And the response both times was, I was afraid. I didn't think there was any fear of the Lord here. I thought you people were going to kill me. My wife's pretty. And so the unbelievers had to rebuke the believer. 
The father of the faithful was rebuked by two pagan kings. Ever been there before? Ever had a boss who's an unbeliever have to call you to account and he or she was right? Ouch. Yeah, it hurts. But those are good life lessons, aren't they? (laughs) We have great promises, but we have to walk in the promises. We need to respond. Go all the way to 2 Peter 1 in the New Testament. All the way getting close to Revelation. 2 Peter 1. The promises are God's, but there is a response that we have as believers. And we shouldn't be making, you know, uh, sometimes people make these false uh, distinctions, which I don't see in the Scripture. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. This talks about God's promises in our response. 2 Peter 1, 3. Seeing that His divine power, God's, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, He, God, has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. And certainly, Abraham and Isaac had those. In order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. We're not little gods, but God lives in us. That's the essence of the verse. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. 2 Peter 1.5 Now for this reason also, because you have these incredible promises and calling from God, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Turn back to Genesis 26. There is a response to God's calling. I called you, my laws, my call, but Abraham obeyed me. Abraham did what I told him to do, not perfectly, but certainly consistently. You and I, brothers and sisters, have a response to God's call in our life. It's not going to happen by accident. We're going to have moments when, uh, you know, God is making that call more and more clear, and it is for us to respond to that call with obedience. There is no substitute for obedience. Obedience is largely where the blessings are found. Now, sometimes we get blessed, and God, you know, does things even when we don't pray for them, but God wants our obedience. And so God says, I'm going to bless you. Just stay here. It'll be cool. And so it's looking good for Isaac until we read verse 7. <laughs> when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. The sins of the father, like father, like son. I don't know if Abraham told Isaac the story I don't know if he warned him, hey son, a couple times, I went to Egypt, I went to Gerar, here's what I said about your mom, she's mad at me, but God was faithful, right? Don't do that, okay? But in a moment of pressure, when God had just promised him, he said, I'm gonna, your descendants are gonna be like what? The stars. You're gonna have so many, it's gonna be incredible. And in the next moment, what does he do? He acts like God never made that promise to him. He acts like he's not even a believer. You ever been there before? You come out of church, 
You pull out on a river road. Somebody's not driving to your liking. Then you realize you have a sticker on your car. It says honk if you're part of Sunday school. <laughs> Living Truth Christian Fellowship. Yeah. Peter had a moment like that. He had that revelation from heaven. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus lauded him, commended him, and then the next thing he became a spokesman for Satan. And Isaac does the same thing. In fear, he let fear drive his response instead of faith. And when we face famines and fears, sometimes we respond in our flesh. There's three F's. When we face our famines and fears, we respond in the flesh, but we ought to respond how? In faith. You might just try it once. <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, but, but really not. Because we get stuck in patterns. And so when we get confronted with something, we say, she's my, she's my sister. She's what? Yeah. My sister. No, she's not. And this isn't even a half lie for Isaac because remember, there's, there's a family relation, but I don't think it's a half-sister relation. And so he was afraid to admit who she was and he wasn't trying to protect her. <laughs> he was afraid they were going to kill him. Boyce says, It's a strange thing. God has appeared to Isaac to say that he would bless him. He said that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky that he would give him all the lands promised to his father Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Yet, here was Isaac, worrying whether God could preserve his life uh, among the Philistines' territory. Strange, yes, but no stranger than our own failure to trust God to care for us. God says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. And it came about when he had been there a long time, so he stayed at Gerar in Philistine territory, that Abimelech, I'm not sure if this is the same Abimelech that dealt with his father, because this is about 80 years later, so it's possible that Abimelech is a name like a pharaoh, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. <laughs> One writer said, whenever we're, uh, being a phony about our Christian faith or we're doing something wrong, inevitably an unbeliever looks out a window and sees what we're up to. And he looked out the window, and this is a play on words in the Hebrew. This is actually a play on Isaac's name. And if you have an ESV, it says he looked out the window and saw them laughing together. The Hebrew word actually means that they were kind of sporting around, being playful with one another, but it did not look like a brother and sister playfulness. And the Hebrew word can imply a caress or a playful, intimate kind of response where they're hugging and perhaps even kissing. And when Abimelech looked out the window, he went, oh, I don't think that's his sister. And he saw Isaac caressing his wife. And, uh, you know, after they were there for a long time, they got a little bit lax. They had fooled the people for a while, but now the truth came out. One writer says, if you're disobeying God, don't always think it will take God to expose it. He may, but if he does not, the world will find out eventually and probably quite quickly. If you dis disobey God, there will usually be an unbeliever watching from some window, close quote. 
We're to be people of truth. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for a second? Ephesians 4. Truth is the way of the new nature. What God wants you to become is a man or a woman of truth despite the inconvenience of the circumstance. The world is known to lie just about everything if they need to get out of something. That's not who we are. We're supposed to be people of truth. And it can be hard to break some patterns in our lives, but that's what we're called to do. So look at Ephesians 4, look at verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, Ephesians 4.22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new self which is which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, this is what putting on the new self means, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give, give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer. You're a new person but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Now regarding speech, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for what? Edification, that means building up. It's from the idea of edifice or a structure. According to the need of the moment that it may give what? Grace to those who hear. And here's what's at stake, brothers and sisters. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And this is directly related to telling the truth and speaking words of edification by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we play it false, we grieve God. When we, uh, when we hold on to bitterness and when we let the sun go down on our anger, when we speak words that have nothing to do with edifying but have everything to do with tearing down, we are being people who are reflecting the world and not Christ. Now sometimes a tough truth can build somebody up. It might hurt them, but your intention is to build them. But in many cases, if not most cases in life, back to Genesis 26, when we say something, we should ask this question. Before the mouth opens and the tongue begins to flutter, ask this question. Is this edifying? Is this in the best interest of this person? Is this to love my spouse as Christ loved the church? Will it truly edify them? Or am I just doing this to tear them down, to make them look bad, to make myself feel better? Well, in moments of crisis and famine, that's when we get tested. And Abimelech, verse 9, Genesis 26, called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, I'm sure a bit sheepishly, because I said, lest I die, lest I die on account of her. To paraphrase, why did you lie, Isaac? And Isaac said, I was afraid. I let fear dominate me, even though he had the promise of God. And Abimelech said, the unbelieving pagan king said, 2610, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have, what? You would have brought guilt. The Hebrew word is asham upon us. The word means 
offense, guiltiness, trespass, or sin. You would have brought sin upon us. Can you imagine this? The pagan king says to the son of promise, you might have brought guilt upon my people by lying to us. Isn't it amazing? Even they have a sense that adultery is wrong. Even the pagan king knows that if a man sleeps with another man's wife, that's wrong. Many Americans, I don't think, have that same morality anymore. Sorry, but it's true. But the pagan king knew it, and he was afraid that there would be uh, some sort of consequence if somebody had done something to his wife. And maybe he heard the stories as well about how this Hebrew God doesn't like it when things like this happen. See, this is all kind of intertwined. And so when David cheated with Bathsheba, finally God sent Nathan the prophet to the king David. And Nathan told him a story about two neighbors and Many of you are familiar with the story and the, the basic idea is that the rich neighbor took the one little ewe lamb and killed it for his guests and you know, he had everything he could have chosen from all these flocks and he took the neighbor's one little lamb that was kind of their pet and killed it and served it to his neighbors. And when Nathan the prophet tells the story to the king, David's enraged. He's mad at what this man did. But then you remember what Nathan the prophet says to David. He says, you are that man. And when David heard those words, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die, however. This is 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Heavy. But what Nathan's message was is, yeah, God is going to be gracious to you, David. But don't think there's not consequences when this kind of stuff happens. Yes, God will forgive you if you do something as a Christian. If you went and robbed a liquor store after this Bible study, and I pray that nobody does that. But if you did that, and you got caught, and you go to jail, and you ask God for forgiveness, would he forgive you? The answer is yes. Are you getting out of jail? Probably not. God will allow us often to swim in the consequences we create. I know that's not happy news, but we all know that's reality. And so just because we have the blessing of God and we're children of God, it doesn't mean that when we behave as, you know, uh, not lights in the culture that there isn't an impact on the unbelieving world. In fact, there are some unbelievers sitting around dinner tables tonight talking about stories from 20 and 30 years ago why they saw some hypocrisy and that's why they don't go to church anymore. Some of them are still hanging their hat on stories like that because they watch us live a contradiction. Now, thank God for his grace and we don't want ever, ever, ever the world to think we've arrived, but you know, this man, he rebuked uh, Isaac and Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. God is good though, right? All of a sudden, the pagan king is protecting now uh, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. That's how good God is. 
Now Isaac sowed in the land, in that land, and reaped. This is verse 12, Genesis 26. He reaped in the same year a hundredfold. This is amazing. This would be an incredible crop in a good time, let alone a hundredfold reaping in a time of famine. This was a miracle. And the Lord blessed him. And the man, that is Isaac, became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. The phrases that should leap out on our Bible pages are that he sowed and he reaped because we know that they appear in the New Testament. And the Bible says, God is not mocked, or whatever a man sows, that he will what? Also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will have the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap what? Everlasting life. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he's addressing giving. He says, he who sows sparingly shall what? Reap sparingly. He who sows generously shall reap generously. The principle from farming carries over to the spiritual life. Here's what it simply is. If you, reap, if you sow a good amount of seed, you're going to reap probably the equivalent harvest. Whatever you sow, you reap. If you sow to the flesh, then you're going to reap that equivalent harvest. It's true. This is the principle in the Bible. The Bible does not teach the law of karma. Please, Christians, don't say karma. It doesn't teach the law of karma. That's a new age philosophy. That's, has, that's all connected to reincarnation and whether or not you're coming back as a princess or a fruit fly. <laughs> that's not Christianity. Christianity does not teach reincarnation. Christianity teaches you have one life. You live it, and then the judgment comes. No second chances you don't do this again and again and again. But the Bible does teach a law of sowing and reaping, and that is this, that if you sow and you invest in spiritual things, they end up coming back to you spiritually. It doesn't always mean financial blessings, but sometimes it can mean that. But it means that you're going to reap what you sow. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You sow to the Spirit, and He blesses. For he had possessions, 14, of flocks and herds and a great household. So the Philistines envied him. They're like, what's up with this dude? This area is in famine, and this guy's got bumper crops coming left and right. What's he doing? Have you ever had a non-Christian ask you about that? I remember when I was coaching baseball, many of the coaches in the Little League thought that I had some extra anointing on my Little League team. And it was true. In fact, I'll tell you one story. This is a great story. I'll never forget this story. We were in a tournament. Some of the coaches had this notion that I had this special extra blessing. They were even afraid to play my teams. And we were in a tournament game. Everything was on the line. And this team, uh, I think we were tied with them, and they had a couple runners on, and our right fielder had just made an error, and uh, we were in deep trouble. It was the bottom of the last inning. And so one of our dads said, we need a triple play. So the kid who had just made this terrible error, the balls hit fairly deep to him. He made the catch, threw to the plate. The guy was tagging from third to win the game. The kid slid over home plate, but he never got his foot down. And my middle son, Nathan, caught the ball, dove, tagged him. He was out. The runner had gone from second to third, was thrown out by Nathan. And we got a triple play. I was about this high off the ground, jumping up and down. Praise the Lord! <laughs> and 
And the other coaches on the other end of the field were like, where does he go to church again? It's good. Hopefully we're the envy of people, not because we're walking around strutting around like, yeah. But because people look at our families and look at how we're calm in certain situations. Look at how we handle adversity. Look at the wisdom that flows out of our lives and they say, wow, that's pretty cool. What is it about your family? What is it about the way you guys approach life? Now, all the wells which his father's servants had dug 15, in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Now, when people envy you, it doesn't mean they're going to come up and ask you to write a parenting book. <laughs> That's not how it always works. Some people may say that, but other people will just try to stop up your wells. You know what I'm saying? They will try to do some dastardly stuff to get in your way. And you may be experiencing that tonight at your company or in your school. God's been blessing you. And there's other people that are around you that are not happy about it. They don't like the, the flow of blessing that's coming into your life, so they try to stop it up. And so they did. They filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You're too powerful for us. Get out of here. I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door one morning years ago. I used to put coffee on for them and be waiting. I, I was a young Christian and I was a little over the top in my methods, I must confess. And the Jehovah's Witnesses showed up and I was so excited. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> I was getting all my training, ready to use my latest tactics. And so they agreed to come in. I think it was the, I think it was the original visit. They sat on my kitchen table and, and we went back and forth and I kind of cornered them in this argument, not that I'm not smart, but because we have the true Bible and the New World Translation is a bit of a problem. But anyway, and so I kept calling this guy on his uh, view. And I, I said, well, is Jesus the true God or a false God? I had him cornered in this argument where he had to admit that either Jesus was God or he had to be a false God because he believed there was only one true God and he didn't believe Jesus was God. So then I forced his hand and I kept forcing him and he kept saying, Michael, truth is like a river. It flows and the river gets stronger. And I'm like, is Jesus a true God or a false God? <laughs> so Michael, truth is like a bridge. You see your street out there? You're not that smart. You're kind of a young man. You don't know what's going on. I said, is Jesus a true God or a false God? We went around for about five times. My dog climbed into its doghouse. <laughs> Family went on vacation. <laughs> and finally, in exasperation, I looked at the young man who happened to be kind of the new convert tagging along. I said, what do you think? I said, has he, the older gentleman, answered with reason from the big biblical text, logic, or anything having to do with context? And the young man said, no. No, he hasn't. In fact, I think you're too smart for us, and we're leaving now. <laughs> okay, I will say this. I tell that story probably mostly for humor, humor purposes, but I did not handle that in a great way. But... The, when the guys walked out, I said, will you take some literature and, and will you take this? And the guy said, no, I would only take it if you came to my door, but I came to your door. I was like, okay, so do I need to follow you home then? <laughs> but these guys just said, hey, you have the God of the Bible. 
with you. You're too powerful for us. There's something going on here that's supernatural. And we want you to leave. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. He's again following in his dad's footsteps. And for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them, I think, to authenticate family ownership. And when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, that is a spring, this is very unusual, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water's ours. So he named the well Asek because they contended with him. The word Asek means contention. And Isaac, you know, he was getting blessed, but he was getting opposition. And sometimes when you're getting blessings, you, you need to know it's probably not sometimes, it's always, you're always going to have opposition. There's always going to be someone out there who's not happy about your message or happy about what's going on in your life. Just expect it, guys. Just expect it. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. We're going to struggle, but God is with us. And so Isaac just kept digging. He kept moving on and digging. They dug another well, 21, and they quarreled over it too, and he named it Sitna. Sitna means hostility or opposition. It's like you read this account. He said he dug another well, and he dug another well, and here's what I just want to say to you about that. Digging another well, digging another well has to do with perseverance, and we just got to hang in there. You, you can be a blessed person, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to have problems. And it's like, you know, how long did it take to dig these wells? I'm sure it wasn't easy work. And they'd do it, and then there would be a fight. Or they'd do it, and then there, someone would try to stop up the work that they had done. Talk about frustration. And God, you know, the Bible says that God gives perseverance in Romans 15, 5. If you need perseverance, God gives it. Write, write it down. It's Romans 15, 5. When Jesus ta is talking to the well, woman at the well... He says, everyone who's, who uh, drinks this water shall thirst again. This is John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to what? To eternal life. God never runs out of living water. God never runs out of perseverance. God never never runs out of grace. Never. He just keeps giving it. If you'll just keep showing up with your little cup, he'll keep filling it up. He never runs out. He just keeps giving grace upon grace. All you got to do is call and he will answer. He'll give you preemptive grace. He'll give you grace in the pivotal moments of life. We can call upon our great high priest who is there, we can go to a throne of grace and receive healthy help and mercy in our what? Healthy <laughs> help and mercy. That's just making it up as I go along here. It's a good word. God gives you healthy. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> and mercy in your pivotal moments. He'll give you preemptive grace. He'll give you pivotal moments grace. And even if you make a mistake, he'll give you grace for the things that you did in the past. God is good all the time i'm not always good i need a lot of helpy personally 
verse 22. And he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. Oh, praise God. Are you sometimes surprised? They're not fighting. What did you do? I hit them both. I hit them. They're both passed out. That's why they're not fighting. Have you ever had moments like that? You're so used to quarrels, and then all of a sudden it's quiet in the house. You're like, what happened? I don't know. <laughs> but man, finally, Isaac, the son of laughter, the blessed one, finally, there was no quarrel. He looked around, and he named the place Rehoboth. That means that there's room. Roominess is the Hebrew word, finally. At last, he said, the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Look, this is a son of promise, you guys, and he had to battle, but the battle belongs to who? To the Lord. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing in Christ, but it doesn't mean we're not going to have our battles, but I pray you'll come to a place we don't have to dig wells anymore and you can just kick back. And he went up from there to Beersheba. Beersheba is a place where his dad had prospered. And now Abraham, or excuse me, Isaac is now moving back towards the promised land. And the second time in the chapter, the Lord appeared to him the same night, uh, right after that final well and that blessing and room and finally. And he said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you, I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Some of you just need to mark that verse. Don't fear, I am with you. Don't be afraid, I am with you. So Isaac built an altar there. That means he's becoming a man of worship. And he called upon the name of the Lord, which means to worship, but it could also imply that he became a preacher. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. He pitched his tent here in the promised land. And Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzaph and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Sometimes we'll be surprised. Unbelievers or enemies will come to us after some time and say, You know what? Something like this. We plainly see. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, Let's make a covenant with you. In this same chapter, in verse 3, God says, I will be with you. In verse 24, he says, I am with you. And in verse 26, the enemies say, the Lord has been with you. All three tenses, if you will, of God's promises. R. Kent Hughes writes these words in his commentary. He says, I cannot vouch for the authenticity of the following delightful story, but the account circulates of a young Chinese convert named Lo, L-O, and his intense excitement when he first read Matthew 28.20 in the King James Version. It says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. <laughs> How personal is that? Certainly Lo understood the Chinese-English coincidence. But it nevertheless affirmed in a memorable and joyous way what is absolutely eternally true for all believers. In a more sober vein, the King James Version language, King James language of Matthew 28, 20 is the inscription that adorns my father's grave marker in Forest Lawn, California, where it was engraved over 50 years ago. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Jesus' word to Graham W. Hughes is my father's eternal reality and joy in heaven and my comfort in this world. Believing that God is always spatially and specially with you is life-altering. If you believe it as Isaac came to believe, it will change your life forever. Sometimes we have to arrive at our altars. It's not always automatic. But they said, look, we don't want you to do us any harm. You're a powerful guy, 29. We have not touched you and have not done you uh, nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. That's not exactly right, but you are now, would you mark this, Bible students? You are now the blessed of the Lord. You are. Do you believe that tonight? I am. You are the blessed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You are the blessed of the Lord. Do you believe it? Amen. Then he made, a, he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. This is something that Abraham had done with these leaders from this region as well. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And now it came about on the same day, mark that, Bible students, we're almost done, that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and they said to him, we have found water. So he called it Shibba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. The famine account that started in verse 1, saying there was a famine in the land, land, ends with a flowing spring of water. From famine to flowing springs of water. That's what God does because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Amen? The old is gone. The new has come. Abundance of water in the midst of famine. This is what people will see. But it wasn't all perfect. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bezmath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they, that is the wives, brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau's poor decisions brought grief to mom and dad, even though we have this great picture of living water. I take you to Isaiah 12, and we're done. Isaiah 12. Go to your right. This is a scripture that is shared at the Feast of Tabernacles. Shane, if you can hear my voice. Would you come on up and uh, we'll close out the service. Isaiah 12, let's start at verse 1. This is red. This is uh, the picture of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall. We're coming up on it. It's the, one of the, it's the last fall feast of Israel. It's there that they remember building sukkahs in the desert the little shelters, and they built them around the tabernacle of God, and the picture is that God would tabernacle among his people. And interestingly enough, the shapes of the tribes around the uh, tabernacle of God made a cross. That's how they went out in the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what they read in the, in the uh, nighttime, or excuse me, the daytime celebration. You will say in that day, Isaiah 12, 1, ESV, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for thou, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, 
make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these lessons that we learn from the patriarchs like Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let us learn the lessons well. Let us see the blessings and the blunders and try to take that way of wisdom, that way of blessing, that way of obedience. It starts with the wells of salvation if you're not a Christian. You're here tonight. You've not met the Lord. He wants to give you living water, not dead cistern water, but living, moving water. It's a picture of God. He's alive. He gives life. Water is essential for life, and God is like water. And he brings a well to our lives that will never run dry. But you must drink of that water. It's a spiritual picture, but Christ is that water. The Holy Spirit is that water. The true God is the water of life. Open up and say, Lord, I want to drink. I don't want to go back to dead cisterns, things that never truly satisfy. If you drink that water, you'll be thirsty again and again and again. But if you come to Christ, you will be satisfied, content, full, and blessed. It's something like this. If you're not a Christian tonight, Jesus saved me. Pray it now if it's you. Come into my life. I want to take that drink of living water. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose from the dead, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Change me from the inside out. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash me with pure water so I can be clean before you. Thank you for the blood of your Son, that redeeming flow that came down at Calvary's cross. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, may you bless them. For those who have rededicated their lives tonight, may you bless them. And for this precious church, may you continue to lead and guide and bless. In Jesus' name, amen.